Hello and welcome to the second series of Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. Over the next few weeks, I will talk to bosses from the Crown Estate, the restaurant chain Leon, British Swimming, the Tate, Liverpool University, the RSPB and many more. They're here to share how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'll explore their mission to make things happen, whether that is bringing in the crowds, protecting nature, preparing elite athletes for the Olympics, educating thousands, or affecting technological change. This podcast is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. We begin with an episode that goes from mobile phones to the Mikado, as I talk to Mark Evans, the CEO of mobile giant O2, and Stuart Murphy, the CEO of the English National Opera. You can read more about them in the episode notes. I started by asking Stuart about the biggest challenge he faced coming into English National Opera 18 months ago. So um, the narrative around English National Opera had been negative for years, and um, so it's partly trying to create a new narrative, which initially had to be fictional, not based on anything, just so that people internally could believe that that a rosier future was possible. Um, Lots of people felt downtrodden. Lots of people talked about failure. They were really risk averse, which is really difficult in an artistic environment where there's no science and no clear definition of what's a success or not. And so, so yeah, the toughest thing was trying to um, get everyone to turn in, in an opposite direction. And instead of them always looking at the negative or worrying or just staying still, was to try and get a bit of movement in the system. Because this was a grand old organisation. Everyone had heard of it. Everyone's seen the, the Coliseum in, in, in the West End. But it had been in special measures, financial measures for a while and a bit, as you say, a bit risk averse. Yeah, I mean... Actually, it was put on the kind of naughty step from the Arts Council about eight years ago, but came off the naughty step about four years ago. So financially, it's been in a really safe and solid position for four years. Reserves have been growing. They're at about six million now, which is kind of unheard of for an arts institution. This year, we've posted the biggest profit in almost 10 years. Audience um, attendance is up 11%. So all the stats are there that speak to a rosier future. But initially, people just didn't believe it. So it meant having to go around people saying, look, this is what a great organisation can look like. Mm. Um, We can have a canteen. We can have feedback. So you can be constantly growing. Um, You can be proud of your job. So when you see people at a party or speak to your kids, you can feel good about yourself. These things are possible. And because ENO has 80% specialists and only 20% generalists... By that you mean the the craftspeople, the people who are building the sets and the people in the orchestra pit and so on. Exactly. That if someone's at ENO, it's very unlikely they're going to leave anytime soon because it's difficult to get a sets building job in another theatre. So instead of... Uh, getting rid of difficult people and hiring in fresh blood and using that as a way of getting people to be more positive. I've had no option but to kind of get down and dirty and in the weeds with people who've been there for 40 years saying, look, I know you said it was better in the 80s, but I was nine when we were in the 80s. It's kind of five prime ministers ago. Um, I know you've been here for 40 years and you don't believe that a mission and vision written down is a helpful thing or an all-staff survey will come to anything, but just trust me on it. Mm. It can do. And and for 18 months been saying that, working hard, and then having enough proof points that people have now started to say actually it can be a better place and and as I say you know that the narrative was behind the reality 
Um, and that's been really frustrating because I, I used to work at Sky where, yeah. you know, it's the other way. I want to pick you up on that because uh, the, the expression fictional narrative sounds a bit like you're misleading or a, a white lie or something. Or Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, there's I think there's an element of leadership which is um, standing in front of a group of adults and saying this is what the promised land can look like and describing a future with such colour and vibrancy and positivity that people believe it. You need to sell them a future. Um, you need enough proof points in the present so that that future doesn't feel just totally fictional. Mm. But it's no good just standing there and describing the present to people because anyone can do that. Mm. What you've got to do is imagine a future that's rosier, that's um, that's attainable, and give it enough of a stretch that it, it will drive the organisation, mm. but not too much of a stretch that people feel panicked and get kind sure. of uh, you know panic blindness type thing and mm. don't move. Mark, I've seen you say on a number of occasions that mobile is the future at O2, but you came in three years ago, and well, you were already there, but you came in as leader three years ago. I'm not sure you quite had the burning platform that, that Stuart described so does that make it harder work? We had a we had a very similar platform, I, I have to say, listening to you, Stuart, because three years ago we were in in somewhat of a hiatus position. Uh, someone had offered to buy the business, uh, that uh, the existing shareholder had accepted that offer, and it was going through competition clearance. And therefore, that is quite an unsettling period for staff. You know, they're bright. They know that the new shareholder is probably going to have individuals and skills and capabilities that they possess. And therefore, how secure is their future? It's, you know, under new ownership, lots change. So you can imagine there was there was a lot of concern and unease. And actually, that competition clearance wasn't granted. And so my biggest leadership challenge was then regalvanizing the business to remind them that this is a wonderful organization with a fantastic brand. And just as Stuart has alluded to, we've got an incredible future ahead of us and providing, as you say, enough color and imagination that uh, inspires people to really give it their all, to reignite the passion that they have for the O2 brand, to give it their full commitment and then drive forward. And, and I have to say, I'm, I'm very fortunate because there are some fabulous people at O2. Um, and we've had, you know, we've had a number of quarters of success and the business has, has gone from strength to strength. But it was just listening to you, Stuart, it was actually very similar three years ago. And, and thankfully, uh, like your business, you know, O2 is now in a, in a better better position. It's a funny thing, I think, you know, when, when I first turn up, you look at all the the facts and some are really bleak. You sort of think opera isn't a kind of broad genre in Britain. Pressure and nervousness around the B word, around Brexit. But then on the good side, you know, amazing craftspeople who, who know their stuff and deliver or inspiring things that people are willing to pay for. But certainly there are certain nights where you have a kind of dark night of the soul and like, God, how do we lift the organisation out of either a groove it's in or help everyone face a difficulty together? I think the only way you can do that is sort of standing in front of them, being really honest, saying, we're not going to put our head in the sand about this difficulty. We're going to look at it, analyse how much of a problem it is for us and then work out a plan to get through it. Mm. Um, but, you know, as, as a leader, you've really got to dig deep sometimes. Don't you often find, though, that characters in the organisation really step forward yeah. at moments? So yeah. I, I think a true test of character is actually when we're needed most. And so some of those dark days can often be the start of something very bright uh, and prosperous. And it's how our staffs, our organisations, they respond when we need them most. Uh, and I have to say, not that I'd wish that on anybody, but there's still a positive lining to those situations. Totally, no question. And Stuart, were there, do you think there was suspicion around you? This guy's coming in from the telly. Oh, Andy's from the north. I mean, these, these are both things that they hadn't necessarily seen 
people like you running the, the English National Opera before. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. I mean, you know, there's lots of examples. Um, Dennis Hawkes, I want to say, I'm sure I've got that wrong. Jeremy Isaacs, Tony Hall, they've all gone from TV to opera. So it's happened before okay. um, with success. I think probably there's an age thing. You know, there were lots of people, people usually go into opera when they're kind of in their 50s and 60s. And I'm, you know, a very young 47-year-old sitting here in my in my Speedos. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's a, a northern thing. Maybe there was. I mean, there's definitely a pace thing in the BBC and certainly in Sky, you pedal downhill. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of phrases we used to live by. And one of them was, if something works, how do you go faster and at scale? Now, in an arts institution that is good at ruminating, and one would argue excellence comes out of great rumination, but sometimes unfocused ruminating, mm. you know, going at pace is sometimes seen as the opposite of great creative endeavour. Mm. I was trying to say, actually, there's enough examples nowadays, Apple being one of them, where brilliantly creative stuff can come out of a driven, focused culture. I mean, after the initial sort of month or so, when people realised I wasn't there to dismantle opera, and I love opera, and I was a good person, and, you know, looking out for the company and had people's backs, I think then lots of the heat calmed down a bit. But yeah, the first couple of weeks was tough. And I note that you've funded a Christmas party. I don't know whether that's just something nice that you did, or this would be a great way of bringing everyone together. Yeah, basically. I mean... I don't know if, if you feel the same. I'm constantly trying to work out how you short-circuit your relationship either to the customer or to the staff. And a lot of the time, uh, as the chief exec, you are stuck in your office because people come to you for meetings and you it's respectful to go through people under you, immediately under you, and not to short-circuit it and go to people mm. at, at the start of their career in the company. So... I'm I'm constantly looking at ways where I can bypass that in a way that is respectful to the management team. And so Christmas parties seemed the ideal thing, get everyone together. I thought, actually, you know, it's going to cost like 10 grand. I thought I'm not going to have a Daily Mail headline that we spent 10 grand of the charity's money on a party, so I paid for it. I thought in the scheme of things, actually, it's going to, going to be fine. Mm. Um, and everyone just got absolutely smashed. And, and you know, I, I turned up late to the party. They'd run out of booze. I, I had to pay for one gin and tonic. It's the most expensive gin and tonic I've ever had. <laughs> But it, it was worthwhile. You know. Mark, if only you could get everyone in 6,700 people in the room and, and, well, maybe not buy them all a drink, but you certainly see them all at the same time. How do you keep in touch with this big workforce? Yeah, well, I completely agree, actually, with the importance of connecting with your people because they're, the um, they're the ones that do the heavy lifting. I mean, it's an odd, um, isn't it? We look at the hierarchy as if the chief executive is the most important position in the company. Ironically, my role is to support those that are on the front line. Those are the people that represent our brand in front of the customer that live and breathe our business. So I think it's important that we give them our support uh, and we create an environment that they can be at their very best and they are able to reach out and connect to whoever they need to in the organization. So we do a number of things, actually. We um, we run a, an app called Workplace. It's very similar to it. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of Facebook, but in business. So everyone has a user profile. It's their photo. Uh, they'll create communities. Uh, they'll post videos and narratives and photos. 
and anyone at any time can can approach me. And by the way, they do. Uh, and it's great that I can respond quickly and we can actually have a conversation in real time. So we do that. We actively encourage that. So in we're, fact, we're about got, to do that. Is it good? It's absolutely fabulous. It's right. honestly, it's, it's one of the best things that as an organization we've done. It really brings the organization together. And I think it's particularly important when your organization is widespread. So we have 450 retail stores. Mm. You know, they, they spend all of their time all week in the store and how can they reach out to the head office how do they know what's really going on you know in our business and and it's a way of bringing everybody together is that something you brought in mark uh, uh, look i'm i'm certainly not going to take credit to it it was it was brought in about 18 months ago mm. uh, by the communications team and and what a fabulous idea it was but of course these propositions really only come to life if we engage them if we use them and i and i have to say everybody does so that's i think a fantastic foundation but we supplement it with what we call the listening tour. So each of the board members uh, and the senior leadership team make a commitment that at least once a month, and it's often more regular than that, we go out and we meet you know, our front line, whether they're in the call centre, whether they're in the retail store, whether it's in a business account, to really get an understanding of what the customer says about us and what the industry requirements and themes are. So those are two just small mechanisms. I, mm. I don't think it's a magic wand. And I, by the way, I wouldn't say they're perfect, but it's important to keep trialling mm. um, and be receptive to thoughts and ideas from particularly the front line. And you're careful to say, talk about the team and the executive and, and those people around you, but is there a, a way that you've imprinted your style on the organisation or are you not a leader who thinks there needs to be you know, style in that, in that way? Uh, you know, there's that there's that lovely phrase, isn't there, of follow the leader. I think if the leader then embraces that way of working, then everyone feels very comfortable and, and like-minded to follow suit. Um, so I think it's really important that I... I set the standard that says, yeah, workplaces are fabulous. Also, yes, I will actively make sure I'm posting on it, I'm commenting, I'm engaging with staff. And I, and I think that sets a tone. And it's very easy, actually. Once, once the chief executive uh, starts something, um, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. Once we start something, then it soon follows suit. I recognize that. And what's the big challenge in the business for you now? And I wrote down two things capacity and service because it's not like you have to bring people to to the service like Stuart has to do and, and the broadening of appeal of opera I mean everyone's there they're all on their phone I suppose you're you have to make sure that you can keep up with their expectations we've got I mean we are in an incredible industry where customers whether they're consumers or businesses have an insatiable appetite of what we provide you know, consumption on mobile connectivity is growing at 50% per annum. There's no sign of that easing up. I think what we'll see in years to come is more and more things will be connected. So we're in a we're a very fortunate industry to be very innovative uh, and and quite advanced. The challenge we have is one of monetization. Um, because, of course, people love the service, but, of course, they want to pay less year after year after year. And, and, and the economics of consuming more and paying less is not great for a shareholder. So if, if, you know, being straightforward, that we're in a lovely industry where there's huge demand, uh, the question is, can we create the right level of return and value for the services that mm. we're providing? And, you know, we're not alone. The sector as a whole, I think, is going through a tough period. Um, you know, British Telecom's share price is probably at an all-time low. Uh, Vodafone's having its tough time. So actually, it's not just a challenge for me. I think it's a challenge for the sector. And it's this odd situation whereby 
we're probably uh, the the number three in your wallet of spend. You know, you all need to eat, you need accommodation, and amazingly, mobile connectivity is number three. Mm. Yeah, we don't have the perception of value, so that's what we somehow have to turn around. So that's partly a marketing communication challenge. Yeah, we've yeah. we've got to work out a way that, that our services are valued and people respect that. Um, you know, it's, we've got an incredible brand. It's it's something that uh, has high levels of consideration and awareness. We've got great loyalty from customers, some of the lowest levels of churn and and the highest levels of customer satisfaction. But what we have seen is price erosion over the mm. past few years. So turning that around, providing some services that customers continue to want and demand, but are prepared to pay for so yeah. we can create the return is the challenge that I think we have as a business and the sector has. Yeah. And Stuart, you've eroded your own prices. You're, you're giving away seats to 18 and unders uh, on a Friday and a Saturday. But what's your view on giving people what they want and broadening appeal and so on? Well, it's such a fascinating question because I think when, um, <clears throat> when I was at the BBC and at Sky and at ENO, there's that balance between giving people what they want and giving people things they don't yet know they love. Um, and if you just give people what they want, potentially you'd go into a smaller and tighter rabbit hole. So you're constantly trying to throw things in the mix that will keep broadening out the offer. You know, the free tickets for under-18s was a really interesting discussion. I'm slightly obsessed with the number three. I ran BBC Three and we bought three as the magic number as our song. And, you know, uh, I, for a while I was obsessed with obituaries and often, and I'm obsessed with political biographies. And lots of the time people think, people summarise their entire career just with three achievements. And, uh, and when we used to ask people how they defined BBC One, £1.3 billion worth of spend a year, they'd say, news at 10, strictly come dancing EastEnders. You think, what's that all you get? Just three shows. So I was kind of obsessed with what are the three big statements we want to do at ENO in, in, during my five-year contract. And, um, and so we said, well, actually, let's be really clear. We're going for young people. So the clearest non-caveat offer we can say is we're, we're offering you completely free tickets. And, you know, when you look at the finances, it could have gone 600 in the red or I think about 50 grand positive. But the problem with that is we were just looking, the timeline we were looking at was just the, the next fiscal. And actually, if you extend it and say, generationally, it's going to be positive, mm. then we shouldn't actually worry about potentially a short-term blip you know it's one of the safety things we've got by being funded by the arts council and not having sort of uh, commercial shareholders so we went for it and actually the upsides have been about two hundred thousand pounds as adults who used to go to eno have now got re-engaged with eno because their kids can now come for free But, you know, it's a real lesson for us as a management team to constantly question our parameters and what might initially look like a huge risky play for the business. Actually, when you slightly broaden out your parameters, that actually is quite a safe bet in the end mm. because it'll pay back generationally. But there has to be a balance, I suppose. I mean, you are a big recipient of Arts Council grant, yeah. 12 million or so a year. Mm, yeah. You don't want to be too financially, uh, you don't want to make too much of a profit because that you want to keep their support. Exactly. But I suppose you need to show that you're using the money well. Exactly. I mean... You know, through the course of this last year, we made almost a million quid profit. Most we've made in almost 10 years. But every quarter, we quickly reinvested it in it yeah. in, in the company. Sometimes it was in really visual things. We've just pulled up the carpet to expose the mosaic, which people haven't seen for 100 years. Other times, it was longer-term stuff like investing in talent development. But, you know, it was really important for both the Arts Council and the wider wider public and staff internally that they, they constantly saw the fruits of their labour. Mm. And, you know, in an opera company... 
the things you spend money on aren't always sexy things. You know, we re- need to redo our lighting. Mm. You know, it's going to be like a couple of million quid we need to spend. Uh, that's not going to get you a full page in the Telegraph. And, you know, a, a millionaire philanthropist is not really going to give us money for light bulbs. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mix of really dull behind-the-scenes stuff that we just need to do as part of our curation. Um, and then there's kind of fun, sexy stuff like hiring four black singers for our chorus. So mm. finally, we're the only national opera company in Britain that is ethnically representative of the country. Uh, Mark, your challenge on, on the investment side, you are, you've come up in one of the, one of the few uh, policy statements Boris Johnson's had time for. Let's get, some, let's get some more infrastructure, mobile infrastructure, rural and so on. We've been talking about this for so long. Why haven't we got there yet? The industry hasn't put the, uh, the money into the masts and the, and, and the ground and so on. It was fascinating, wasn't it? His first six minutes in front of the cameras, and you're right. He he talked about broadband coverage, actually, uh, and I think it's fair that you know broadband is such an enabler for economic growth and and actually how we live our lives. I think he sees it as a critical part of infrastructure that we must invest in if we want to drive Britain into a more prosperous future. And we do lag Europe. You know, we have fibre to the premise of around 6 to 7%. If you can compare and contrast that to somewhere like Spain, which is north of 70%, we've got a long way to go. And if you think you know, the GDP of the UK is much stronger, and I would suggest probably likely to be healthier and more resilient than Spain, then the question is, so why haven't we done that? And it, and it does come back down to, are we expecting perhaps too much in terms of value, but not prepared to invest? Um, so, you know, if I take, let's take the mobile world as an example. Today, most customers will probably spend just for the pure connectivity bit, not not buying the handsets, because of course, you know, Apple and Samsung do fantastically well and they're incredible pieces of kit, but just purely what they pay the carriers. Typically, it's around £20 per month. As an economy, I think what we've got to somehow work out is to balance the two. We do want to provide great value, but at the same time, you want industries to grow. And I think we all perhaps, we haven't quite got that balance right yet. Stuart, I want to move on and talk about creative leadership. You've done it through numerous organisations. Isn't the challenge with creatives that they just don't like to be led? (laughs) Right. I mean, that's such a sort of million-dollar question. They want to just do that. They want to just get on and and think big thoughts and make wonderful things and and they don't necessarily want um, someone above them, I don't know, thinking about cost or strategy or something. It's fascinating. I mean... I think there's there's a couple of myths around creativity and which are unhelpful. One is that creatives have their genius moment as a eureka moment. And if people believe that creatives have their eureka moment, then it it inhibits other people from trying to improve an already good idea. Uh, so people stand back waiting for the one genius in the room to come up with a fully-fledged, fully thought-through idea while yeah. everyone else sits back. So the idea of the eureka moment isn't helpful. I think also the idea that creativity is a kind of machine gun, um, continual outpouring of random ideas, and it's for the boss to sort of catch them, the good ideas, and then turn Turn them into a, this is a terrible analogy, turn them into a fully cooked cake. (laughs) (laughs) um, You're throwing cake battery around. Yeah, from these bullets, (laughs) turning them into a perfect Sara Lee trifle. Oh, everything of that sentence is unhelpful, actually. But, you know, the idea that um, you can be scattergun and a great creative, I think, is out of date. And certainly in my previous jobs, and a little bit at ENO, but it's probably more relevant in TV, I think, that you'll interview someone for a plum creative kind of million pound a year job, and they will come in and just 
say everything that's in their head. And actually, what great creativity is, is kind of purposeful creativity. You have a strategy that works for the business, and you might not call it the business, you know, it might be for the BBC. Mm. Uh, you look at an audience need, and you focus and feed a creative's mind to, to be kind of exercise in trying to solve that problem. And that's where really enlivening, uh, transformational creativity can blow a business apart and make it exceptional. And so I kind of am a bit grumpy and have short shrift with people when they just come in and outpour. And so I think most people, and creatives are no different, want to be led because they like that relationship where they play the kid and they want an adult in the room who's, importantly, who's catching them when they fall and lets them take the glory when they win. Someone a bit responsible. Yeah, I'm really, I'm the youngest of three, but my brother, my brother's the kind of crazy wild child. Mm. And so I quite like being the number two and and um, as my sons would say, they're 17 and 19, 19 year olds obsessed with politics. He takes the mick saying, I love being the puppet master, but I really like standing back, letting brilliant people do their thing. If there's a mistake, and that's a natural byproduct of pushing stuff, I like being the person front and centre saying, look, we got it wrong, but we're going to go again mm. and we're going to go again. We're going to learn from it and do it with integrity in line with our values. Mm. Mark, is there an analogy in how you keep on top of the next technology and also keep a rein on is not the right thing but you've got to um you've got to keep a check on your technologists um they could i mean there's also there's always such wonderful things like we'll have mobile delivered through water or broadband through the electricity cables there's always been something and what i are guess what are technologists like as well are they are they <laughs> they're like creatives but worse <laughs> Willy Wonka type people are these? Is that, is that I think I think we're generalising way too way too much. Yeah. You know, in terms of creativity and innovation in an organisation, what you want people to be able to do is is think laterally and not to feel too much pressure. Yeah. Uh, you know, for us, I think we're receptive to hear everyone's thoughts and ideas. We're here to experiment and we're here to recognise that actually we're probably going to get more things wrong than right. But that's okay because mm. if you spot them soon enough, you can address that and, and put us back on the rails. And that actually the wonderful moments that will bring success probably are somewhat left field. And there's a risk reward formula. You know? so, so to receive something that's really positive, you're going to have to take risks. Let's, let's go back to, do you remember the Millennium Dome? Yeah. I mean, what an eyesore it was. You know, it was literally going to be knocked down. We came along with AEG and we had the idea of, of launching you know, an entertainment venue. Now, that had a phenomenal amount of risk, but we ran with it. And it's now the world's leading entertainment venue. And that's incredible. But along the way, I can assure you, I could probably name three or four other ideas that didn't succeed. And being okay with that and encouraging that, I think, enables people to believe, to think laterally and to keep putting forward great ideas. Mm. So mm. I think whether you're creatives, whether you're innovators, you want to know that you're in an environment that will support you and that will encourage you to think likewise. One of the conversations we have at work is how do we make success as inevitable as possible? And so one of the things is analysing what's successful and how we've, we've been successful. Sky were brilliant at this. Every time there was a hit, people talked about the hit, analysed it. And so the language of success was, they were familiar with the language of success. It wasn't a distant stranger. Sort of the opposite to the BBC. When I was at the BBC, they had a failure. They talk about it a lot. And the, the lexicon and language of failure was really familiar. Anyway, so, uh, you know, we talk a lot about our successes and work out what, 
what makes success as inevitable as possible. And one of the things that does is making sure we listen to the wild idea in the room. And the way we can get more wild ideas is by hiring people who gently and regularly disagree. And, you know, in the interview process, it's really, really important to me that people don't just copy my opinion because I've got the best version of my opinion. I don't need another version of that. And so if you're just going to copy my opinion in a slightly more rubbish way, then you're kind of surplus to requirements. But in order to do that, you need a culture where people are very comfortable with regular continual disagreement. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. You need to sit in the awkward, be comfortable saying, James, not right, I, I don't believe with that, and, and having a bit of banter and, you know, without going toe-to-toe and killing one another. Mm. Mark, can I ask you about crisis? There haven't been many um, in, in your three years. Just to go back to that day at the end of last year, the data outage, which was, I think, about a day long or something and, and went very, very big on social and so on. What did you do in that situation? Do you need to get onto your people or get standing on the bridge somewhere or do you take to the airwaves how, how did you tackle that because you're only as good as that the brilliant service that you offer yeah and it was clearly not not one of our best days you know we let our customers down and we lost data connectivity as you say for a number of hours and at that moment i think what customers probably wanted us to do is a bring it back as quickly as possible they recognize that we tried to keep them abreast of the situation Uh, And we were honest. We apologized. And actually, most corporations just fail to do that. They try and hide. They try and defend. And I think as humans, we realize that life is not perfect. Technology is not perfect. Things go wrong. And what customers want to believe is that we have their best interests at heart. So, you know, you asked me what I specifically did. Mm. Uh, You can imagine the, the call goes very early. It's bad news, Mark. I go straight into the emergency room. Um, So it's all hands to the pump. And we have a phenomenal team where we know exactly how each of us will respond and conduct ourselves in an emergency situation, which clearly this was. So our corporate affairs director would immediately cover social media, would cover TV and radio, and we'd prepare for what we could say at each time. And we'd be very open and transparent about what we were doing. We'd have someone on the operations side, you know, detecting exactly how we could recover the service. We were not at all interested at that point, ironically, in understanding what had gone wrong. It was all about recovery. And then in due course, once it was up and stable again, and thankfully it didn't take long, then we could start, you know, talking to customers. And and what we said is I, I remember going on live on TV to apologize. I said we'd make it up to you in an O2 way. And then we did that. We wrote yep. to everybody. We took a full advert out in, in national press. And actually, we saw two things. We saw some customers say it was devastational and, and you know, I'm going to sue you for a million pounds. And you, you, you have to have at least some degree of empathy, although I think you've lost perspective. And then we had, amazingly, we had some customers write in and say, you know, dear Mr. Evans, uh, I've not had dinner with my teenage daughters for the last year. Uh, and last night, because there was no data coverage, we had dinner together. Any chance you could arrange that to happen tomorrow? <laughs> now, now, of course, so, so in fact, what I think the brand has done over a number of years is built an affinity with customers that they'll forgive you as long as you behave and act in the right way. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I hope it never, ever happens again. But uh, I recognize life's imperfect. And it's a real test of character of how we respond and how we conduct ourselves in those moments. But I imagine with 33 million connections, not all of them human, of course, within that group, you're going to get all sorts of views. Yeah, exactly. You get a full spectrum. 
Um, and you have to recognize that people are free to feel how they wish to and it's important that we're receptive to those and we engage but we shouldn't again blow it out of all perspective we should listen we should be open and we should uh, respond in the best possible way so I had customers who've been us with us long time that actually dropped me a note to say you're having I can clearly see you're having a busy day last thing you need to do is talk to me at the moment look pick up the phone you know when things have settled and, and we'll talk at that stage and you gain real confidence that people are actually very supportive of you at that moment yeah. all you see is the negativity perhaps mm. and the pressure but actually what's around you is you know i have six and a half thousand people that work tirelessly for row two i can assure you they were all out of bed they were all focused they were all determined to do whatever they could to get this business and this brand back mm. up together mm. Stuart, i want to go back to the beginning you followed the chris evans model to the top of media by starting as the t-boy <laughs> yeah um you know going back from manchester and, and, and onwards what are the skills what are the things you observed and you picked up that you think still hold you in good stead now i think kindness actually plays a big part were people <clears throat> nice to you is that a uh, no, not necessarily. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, a lot were, because I think fundamentally people are kind. My worldview is if someone comes across as not kind, you just don't know them well enough yet. So I'm a pretty positive person. But yeah, I know there were a couple of isolated times when it's tiny things, but people you know, didn't say thanks for the tea or coffee. And you're kind of invisible at certain levels, which speaks to a culture that is wrong. And so kindness or lack of kindness, manners, I think is really, really important. I think you know, it's really interesting hearing you talk about those people who are prepared to get up early and go for it with the business and all hands on deck. I think you see, when you see that in action, it's, this might sound a bit wet, but it's really moving. You know, mm. People are prepared to help one another out. It's more than just a business. It's saying, actually, this is what my character is. I'm going to dig in, be with you in the tough times. And so I, was, I would see stuff like that as a T-boy, and you'd think, actually, if ever I get to a position of power, this is sort of how I'd do it. And these are the things I wouldn't take on board. So things that really speak to me, really flat structure. Sky has only nine levels between the, the boss and the kind of lowest rung. That's really, really important. I think if you have a really flat structure, you tend to have quite large teams, which means you can't micromanage. Mm. That's a really important mm. thing. I think the confidence to fail is important, so long as you don't let that idea become too settled in the business because you're all about the hits. I think legacy is really important. You know, since I had my kids, you think, actually, I want to leave the place in a, a better way than I found it, and you want to touch people's lives, no matter what industry you're in, not only customers, but also staff. I still remember clearly at the age of sort of 27, meeting the BBC Director General for the first time. And it was quite a cold meeting. And then about 10 years later, when I worked closely with Greg Dyke, I, I still remember the occasions when he was unbelievably inspiring. Mm. And that stayed with me. And it doesn't just stick with me. I can have that ripple effect to kind of pass on that Greg Dykeness to other people. I think as a chief exec, you have to be on every single day because you don't know when you're going to have an interaction with someone that will have a transformational, possibly generational, certainly national effect. Yeah, it's quite exhausting, but it comes with a job. You've not got to worry about legacy, though, Stuart. You commissioned Gavin and Stacey. <laughs> yeah, but some of the other appalling things I commissioned, you know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, not on your CV, though. I don't know why. I was, I was going to come on to things like failure, but I don't see it. There obviously must be, there must be some stinkers. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Of course. Of course there are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, for every Gavin and Stacey in Little Britain, there's probably 20 that didn't quite work. In fact, actually, more crippling than being a disaster are things that are mediocre. You know, you, for, for me, I liken it to 
another appalling analogy coming up, but it's a bit like relationships. You remember the really amazing one night stand or weekend you had, or you remember the 10 year relationship. What you don't remember are those slightly awkward three or six month relationships that were just a bit kind of nothing. Right. And in TV, and I suppose in life, the, the, the biggest worry is to, is to be in the middle ground. Mm. Uh, at ENO, we talk about we're, our business is, we're in the business of the spectacular. Mm. People don't want something that won't passionately move them in any direction. Um, they don't want something that's just fine. I think that's possibly the worst insult about an opera. You can go, mm. yeah, it's all right. We're, mm. All right, just won't cut it. Mm. And in an increasingly competitive commercial world, to get your head above the parapet and and justify people spending hundred you know hundred twenty five quid on a ticket, fine, won't cut it. It's supposed sure. to be exceptional on every level. Mark, you're obviously l- lagging in the analogy states. Um, it, <laughs> you need a green cake. There must be something from the rugby pitch because you were you were a leader on the rugby field at university, and then. You might have gone further, but then you decided it was accounting. <laughs> if, <laughs> if I just yeah, compress your CV. S- and sa- sadly, I was never quite good enough to cut it as the rugby player and make the profession. But you know what? I'd, I'd hand my role in tomorrow and, and wear the, certainly the colour of my country, that's for sure. You know, the, the thing with sport and business, though, is, and I think you recognise this, particularly in, in uh, sport, is there might be one captain on the field, but any brilliant team has a number of leaders in the pack. So, you know, I love rugby. And if you go back and look at any of the World Cups, um, and you can always remember the captain, but you can almost go back over the 15 players in a rugby union side. And certainly whenever someone's won, you can probably name half of the players that were inspirational characters and true leaders. Mm. And that comparison to business, I think, holds true. Mm. Uh, you know, we might be, you know, Stuart and I are the chief executives. and But for our organisations to thrive... We need leadership throughout the organization, people who feel it's equally their responsibility to champion, to drive, to do something spectacular, as you say. And by the way, can I just say thank you? Because Gavin and Stacey was amazing. It's certainly one of my favorites. So that, for me, would be the comparison you know, between sport and, and business. Um, leadership isn't about hierarchy. It's not about the top position. It's about embedding that throughout the, the business. I'm interested in, in after you put down the, um, the rugby stuff, you, you were number Numbers man, numbers man, numbers man, NTL, Voda, and in, into O2. What did you have to do that made you chief executive or chief executive in, in waiting? Did, would you have to sort of broaden out the, the role or retrain yourself, if you like? Yeah, I, I think um, I think the chief executive role is, is undoubtedly one of the broadest roles in the organisation. You know, the diversity we face is probably one of our biggest challenges. And when you develop your career, you're often developing it in a functional way. You're an expert in a one particular field. And then, of course, you get the opportunity and the privilege to, to lead an organization. And you realize, actually, you know a lot less than you realize. In fact, you, you, know, you don't know more than you know. And it's being able to call on the team around you and, again, recognizing that each of them can build. It's not just about you. You know, when I started my career, it was really about what contribution I as an individual made uh, and now, of course, it's not about Mark at all. It's it's about the six and a half thousand people that actively run the business on a day. My role it's flipped completely. Leadership now has become about how I inspire and empower the rest of the organisation to be at their best. And it's absolutely not about me as an individual. And that that's a fundamental switch from when perhaps I began my career. You this know isn't the word you would like, but it's kind of how you use your patronage, if you like. 
Yes, it is. Yeah, it's it's how you set everybody else up in in the right way. You know what's really interesting? I think is when in order for a management team to play brilliantly, they need to know themselves and know their strengths. And I wonder if there's something un-British about that because it feels a bit wacky woo. But you know, we did a whole bunch of 360 degree feedback and appraisals, which hadn't been done in ENO ever, unbelievably. And so, you know, someone knows that they're great at coming up with ideas. Someone else knows they're great at being a kind of solid, solid force that's calming. So then when, when you've got a particular problem, you kind of go to that person and say, it's your time, we need you for, your, for the brilliant skill you bring. Mm. It's quite hard to do that if people aren't aware of their role in the team. So we had, you know, people need to kind of know themselves and be self-aware and cognizant of what their brilliant skill is. And they need to be so he's reflecting back to them. Yeah. You talked about Greg Dyke and his Greg Dykeness, which I'm sure he's bottled and, and, and sell, selling now. But is there a, is he a mentor? Other people have been mentors to you as you've come up? Yeah. So um, when I was, I was running a channel called UK Play that was the BBC's rival to NTV. And the guy at the time who was my boss was called Rowley Keating. Yeah, he went on to run BBC Two when I ran BBC Three. And then, um, and then he now is chief exec of uh, the British Library. And it's quite a few things he said that really stuck with me. One was, always work harder and be nicer than everyone else. This is a sort of basic thing. Yep. There's another thing he said, which was, always surprise people. And at the time I was in roles at the BBC where I was like the young maverick, you know, I was sort of northern in a, an institution that's southern, you know, I was sort of five, ten years younger than other people in, in the group. And he was like, if ever people want a countercultural and a kind of reaction review, they'll go to you. Actually, the surprising thing for you to do is give the kind of humdrum straight down the line view that's more conservative. That'll really keep people awake so they can't predict how you're going to respond. And certainly at certain points in my career, being unpredictable or surprising has been really helpful. I don't think it's particularly helpful as a chief exec. I think people want a solid leader who's driving the ship in a predictable, planned way. And then in the ship's wake, people can do their crazy fun stuff. But, you know, I've, had, I've definitely had to dampen that side down and bring up the side which, for me, is kind of German A-level, maths A-level, pretty boring before my time. Mm. It's interesting how you, you take this model of being nice to people. And you also talk about the, the sort of clubability, if you like. I mean, I, I know quite a lot of people who've been at Sky in senior positions. It can be a... T- I'm not saying it's a, it's an aggressive place, but it's quite hard-driving. I wonder if you can keep the niceness about how you run a team when it's so results-driven. It's really a real powerful challenger brand. I, th- I think it's probably, I'm guessing, like, like Mark's industry, that from the outside it seems quite muscular because a lot of the times it's reported in the press are either takeovers or share price or you know how you're driving a business. The language is quite alpha, mm. and that's how it can often seem on the outside. But when, when you're in the middle, of it it's sky for instance and i'm guessing meeting you it's similar in your business it's got to be kind because it's full of individuals who are funny shapes and have their issues and you know you want to get the best out of people if you really look out for them you're on their side you understand their worries and their aspirations sky was incredible in terms of staff engagement brilliant in terms of training and because it was every single day thousands of people at sky were speaking to customers it wasn't a far removed entity 
identity, mm. the interface between lots of Sky and the population was multiple constantly. So that was constantly in the bloodstream of how Sky worked. So you couldn't afford to be a cold, hard <laughs> sort of exec. Mm. I mean, no, no question, it was a, a tough job. You know, mm. I was on the exec probably for about two years at Sky for about six and a half. And, um, you know, we went every quarter and then we went again and we went bigger and we went faster and we were very 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 competitive sometimes i find it easier to be competitive if i can personalize who i'm who i'm out to beat sometimes i find it easier to be competitive if i think about my family in leeds and how to make their tuesday night better but you were always looking for inspiration to keep your heart racing it was an extraordinary place to work. It's yeah. one of the best places I've worked. But you stepped back, I think, in 2015 because you wanted to do different things and then you found eventually this leadership role which seems to suit you um, down to the ground. So you still wanted to be in charge. You had lots to give, but you just wanted a bit more of a balance. Yeah, I mean, so on the other half, uh, David was having a tough day at work. I was like, come on, let's go to the pub. Three pints in, I was, after him talking about how, you know, it's a midlife crisis, I was like, I've got you, I'm going to quit. And he was like, it's not about you. I went, no, no, it's not about you, but actually I'm going to quit. So I went in the following day, said, that's it, I'm done. Mm. And they said, is it money? Is it a different role? I was like, no, none of that, I'm done. Mm. And so I had a year's notice on my contract. I did about two months before I wanted to steal the staplers and pens. And um, and then sat around for two years, didn't do anything, yeah. gave our money away. And then, um, uh, yeah, basically thought, well, what makes me happy? It makes me happy getting on with the mother of my kids, with my kids, with my partner. Um I love being around fun people. Um, I love dogs. I really like giraffes. Like doing up houses. Like charity work. So I literally went down the list of what makes me happy. And then, um, then one day we'd come back from the Maldives diving, and um, and I'd said to David, tough assignment. Exactly. I said to David, "Oh, I'm feeling pretty down." He was like, "Shut up. Get a job." And within a month, I had a job. <laughs> <laughs> Not much sympathy that one, Mark. You haven't you haven't resigned in uh, you know to spend more time with, with the family. But how do you get how do you get a balance? Because you've got I think three kids. Yeah, I have. By the way, listening to that, I'm tempted though. <laughs> tempted I am. Yeah, <laughs> diving in giraffes sounds like my yeah. world. Well, it's just a shame the London Zoo job wasn't wasn't <laughs> yeah. open. You know what? I would have London loved the London Zoo job. Yeah, I'll tell you. I think we'll both be on that short <laughs> list if it comes up. Um, no, I haven't resigned yet. I love my job. You know, and actually, some of the advice I give to people is. You know, you spend so much time working for the organisation you do. You, you've got to have a passion for it. You know, don't stick around if you see it just as a job, as a paycheck, because that's not, you're not being fair to yourself. You're not Absolutely. being fair to those around you or to the business. So, you know, the irony is, uh, you know, we've just come back from summer vacation. I've loved it. I've had time with the kids. But, you know, I'm also loving getting back to the office as well and, and continuing to drive the business for the next chapter. So what excites me is not where we've been, but but where we're going to. And I'm just fortunate enough that I can balance those two. Uh, yes, three kids, although I should say two of them have, have left. Two of them, Tom and Sam, they're 25-year-old twins. Uh, one's an architect, one's a, one's an accountant, sadly followed in his father's footsteps. Always but, need accountants. Yeah, well, well, maybe, but who knows with artificial 53% intelligence. 53% of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, so, um, and actually Jessica's only seven, and so she keeps the household very youthful. Uh, and, and there's nothing better, actually, when you come home from work as a real leveller. You know, when a seven-year-old runs up, gives you a cuddle or tells you what they've baked at school that day. So, you know, it, it's a lovely combination for me to have. So, no, thankfully at the moment, I, I've 
you know, I thoroughly enjoy both sides. Where did you go on holiday? Where do you, where does someone like you go on holiday, and and how do you switch off? Someone them? like you, Mark. So, <laughs> well, you're clearly driven, and kind of, you know, it's a massive, massive job. What it, would you do? Yeah, it's it's a it's a big job, but the the way I look at it, it's not. It isn't just about me. It's about yeah. the whole team that run this organisation. So uh, hey, we went to um, we went to Portugal for for ten days, um, and you know, Jessica's at an age where seven. Probably we're doing things that seven-year-olds love and enjoy. So around the pool a lot, around the beach. Um, And the simple facts are, if if your children are happy, then so are you. Um, But lovely to take a break. But as I say, and and maybe I think that says something about me as well, my character is, it's great to be back. You know, I love what I do and who I work with. Okay. Stuart Murphy and Mark Evans, thanks so much for the conversation. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, including a conversation with Kate Collins, the chief executive of Teenage Cancer Trust. Here she is explaining how she handled the legacy of Stephen's story, a teenager who raised millions of pounds for the charity before his death. I took some criticism privately, but from colleagues within the charity sector, different directors of fundraising saying you should have made that more about your brand. You weren't wearing branded T-shirts when you did, you know, BBC News. Where was your brand? You weren't making it enough about Teenage Cancer Trust. And and I was like, it wasn't about Teenage Cancer Trust. It was about Stephen. It was about this young man and, and respecting what he was inspired to do. And he said he was inspired to do that because of the difference we'd made to his view of the world. But it wasn't about us. Thank you.